Hello there. Are you a man? Are you white? Are you over the age of... Well, did your birth year start with 19? Do you believe that modern board gaming and modern society is not as good as it used to be? And that all these opinions are not as good as they used to be? Are you unable to understand the fact that times have changed and society has moved on? Do you have absolutely awful takes on how games should be and how gamers should react? Jamie? So, Jamie? What, uh, yeah, what you, yes, yes, Ian. Oh, sorry. Yes, Ian. Hi. What, what are you using the studio for? Uh, I was... It sounds, like, it sounds like you're doing some work in the studio that's not Giant Brain HQ work. I I was I was subletting it for uh, if any old white people, old white men, who am I kidding, had any bad takes, uh, let it all out because you know, get it out in the open. I like a sort of charity thing. Yeah, yeah, call it charity. Call, call it that. Well, look, I don't think really. Brainwaves or giant brain really wants involved with that kind of thing, so let, let let's keep that outside of the building, shall we? Anyway, look, I've got the notes for the show. Let's forget about this and just get on with it, okay? Ian, we can't. It's board game. There's always old white men with their ridiculous ideas, and I'm a young white man. And what's your name? I'm Jamie Adams, and I'm Ian McAllister, and this is Brainwaves eighty five, bringing you the best in tabletop gaming news. These are the headlines for the week of 1st of November, 2021. China does not have the power. Paizo Union recognised. And Zenobia Award finalists are announced. All this and more on this episode of Brainwaves. Yes, it seems that the woes of Kickstarters and board games in general are never ending. A recent update from Frank West to the Isle of Cats Don't Forget the Kittens Kickstarter by City of Games detailed a new problem in the world of board game production. As I'm sure many of our listeners are aware, there's a global issue with the price of energy at the moment, and this has become particularly acute in China. This has resulted in the Chinese government imposing restrictions on factories, which include the following, which were detailed in Frank's update. Not allowed to work before 8pm, which means no day shift, only night shifts. Cannot work on weekdays, only weekends, holidays. Can work on alternate days only, odd date, even date. No limitation on which date to work, but the government is providing a maximum consumption of power per month. And if you exceed this amount, you have to shut down and wait until the next month. Frank goes on to say that points one and two are hitting the heavy industries, which include paper suppliers, obviously quite important for the board game industry. Three and four are what the factory producing the game that Frank's working on are getting hit by, and presumably other board game manufacturers will be similarly impacted. As Frank puts it in his update, simply put, the government has told the factory they can only work 50% of the time for the foreseeable future, and as such, everything is going to take at least twice as long to do. I mean, how much more can board game manufacturing take? (laughs) It's had a lot of problems recently. It's important to say, I know we're a tabletop game-focused podcast, but this isn't just tabletop gaming. This is anything that's made in China, which, funnily enough, is most things. 
yeah, as I've mentioned in the cast, uh, several times I, I work in a bike shop in Edinburgh, and we've seen all sorts of supply problems because uh, all of bike parts and most bikes are made in China and Taiwan, but for the majority of them. So yeah, this is going to hit that the industry I work in as well. It's going to hit everyone a lot. So yeah, uh, a little reminder to be kind to pick star folk who are in the middle of getting their board games to you. They are having a terrible, terrible time of it. The general reminder to just be kind, slightly more in general. See if something isn't arriving on time. Don't get angsty about it because there's a good chance there's a major problem that goes all the way back to a lack of energy in the world because there's too many people. Jamie, usually we put this kind of thing in updates, but there's some more news out of Paizo that's quite important. Now, on the last two podcasts, we have been covering the developments at Paizo Publishing, developers of Pathfinder RPG and Starfinder, among other properties. Now, the situation for Paizo was initially looking extremely bad, as several freelancers for Paizo, that's individuals not directly employed by the company to work on projects, had simply put down tools and refused to work any further until the situation inside the company was resolved. Jason Tondro, senior developer for Pathfinder and Starfinder, took to Twitter to explain the situation. The key part of that was the following. Some of these freelancers were in the middle of projects with upcoming deadlines. Some of them had completed manuscripts they refused to turn over. Some were people we need to hire to get scheduled books underway in time to publish. All of that froze. Folks, Paizo can't operate in that environment. We just can't assign 10,000 word organized play scenarios, 35,000 word sci-fi adventures, 50,000 word P2 adventures, I assume that's uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition, to new untested freelancers. And for many projects, it's too late in the schedule to do that anyway. Perhaps because of this situation, we're delighted to report that Paizo has now voluntarily recognized the formation of the union eight days after it was announced. The company said, We look forward to working with the union to continue and expand our efforts to make Paizo a better place to work and to ensure that Pathfinder and Starfinder products continue to exceed gamer expectations for many years to come. The union's next step will be to elect representatives to negotiate with the company with their first goal being to raise wages to match the cost of living. Now the fact they voluntarily recognise the union and in quite a short space of time as well is... well. A testament to the uh, their need to recognise the value of the labour that these freelancers are providing, which is great. Uh, yeah, and I just hope that this will continue to be a good development uh, and good discussions will be had because, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll hopefully see more of this throughout the industry because one of the things that came out of the formation of the union was a piece in wired which we'll also link to in the show notes talking about the wider rpg industry and many people within it reporting anonymously to wired about the conditions and they're not great Uh, one of the things jamie mentioned in the article there was their first goals to raise wages to match the cost of living that's because on the last cast uh, when we were reporting on this we mentioned that the basically paizo aren't paying enough to live in the area where paizo are based which is kind of terrible if you're working for the company you eventually have to take another job in order to survive one that comes this kind of thing though is possibly going to be a raising in prices of these products and are are we i'm i'm personally willing to pay for products where i know people are getting paid better but is the wider hobby that's the question tabletop games by their very nature are a luxury product and yes we're used to paying you know more money or for board games and, and indeed role-playing books. 
the price obviously is going to go up and personally i'm okay with that but i know that the privilege i have yeah that i will probably be able to afford that there are other people who will not i mean maybe there are ways around that making some sort of free to play like a lot especially a lot of rpgs have introductory stuff that you can get access to and sort of free scenarios that kind of thing so people can still play those games but yeah i mean i'd like to see it more in stretch goals you see some kickstars where they they structure the stretch goals in such a way that basically the stretch goals are people working on this are going to get paid more which is great i like to see that kind of thing rather than knickknacks and and doohickeys in your board board game shinier bits and pieces people actually get paid more but yeah, we'll update folk as uh, we hear more from that and as Paizo have recognized it, hopefully we'll hear a lot more out of that in the not-too-distant future. Remember, the bosses need you more than you need them. On to more awards news. Now, obviously, I cover a lot of the awards on this podcast. And, you know, from from the Spieler des Jahres, I hope that was all right, uh, to the Diana Jones, sadly lost... The Perspex Pyramid, sadly no news as of yet. But one of the ones that's really piqued my interest, I think Ian's as well, over the past year, has been the Zenobia Awards, which was a wargaming-specific set of awards uh, to bring a more diverse group of designers to the field of tabletop wargaming. Now, we've covered the announcement of the awards themselves, we've, we've covered the nominations, but now is the time for the first winners to be announced. Out of the eight finalists, three were chosen. The first place went to Tyranny of Blood by Akar Bharadvaj, a game about the Indian caste system under British rule. In second place, Winter Rabbit by Will Thompson, exploring a pre-Columbian system based on reciprocity and community rather than supply and demand in a Cherokee village. And for anyone who's wondering, pre-Columbian is pre-Christopher Columbus. And in third place, Winai Kase by Alison Collins, a game that explores the function of Machu Picchu, the famous archaeological site in Peru, who to this day, we're not entirely sure what it was for. Now, you can find details about all these games and the others that were nominated as finalists on the Zenobia Awards site. Huge congratulations to the three winners, all the games that made it through to the finals. I, I, I'm not always a huge fan of war games, but chance to try something very different. I'm very interested in, in having a look at some of these and hopefully getting some of them to the table because trying something different is fantastic. And by the sounds of them, especially like the second place one, Winter Rabbit there, they do not sound, and the third place one, they do not sound like what I would think of as a traditional war game with competing sides and historical conflict. They are about a moment in history, but they are not a war game in the sense that I, I would think of it anyway. So yeah, fascinating selection. And there's been a fascinating selection of, uh, of themes and topics in these games throughout the awards process. So please do go and check the Zenobia Awards out. There's been a load of games there. I believe I saw someone on Twitter saying that one of the original nominees is now on Kickstarter as well. So yeah, it's, it's great to see these voices being lifted up and starting to come to market. And yeah, hopefully that'll change wargaming for the better. Great to see the voices being lifted up, I agree. Now it's getting the gaming community as a whole to go, actually, these are worth your time and attention. Yep. And we know how much gamers love embracing new things. Yeah, well, we'll see if we can maybe get our hands on one or two of them and review Hopefully. them for the site at some point in the future. That'd be nice. 
Now on to the rest of the news. A little update for you at the top of the news. Back in episode 68, we reported on the controversy surrounding Mayfair Games and its game Bamboo Bash. This game bore a startling resemblance to the game Talk Talk Woodsman that Mayfair previously had rights to publish. Needless to say, the whole situation was a complete mess. Well, now it seems that Mayday Games are at it again. They have recently put out the rules for a game called Catapult Castle that looks distinctly similar to a game called Coconuts by designer Walter Schneider. This is a game that Mayday Games has previously published, but no longer has the license for. Sound familiar? We haven't had time to reach out to Mayday Games for comment at this time, but we will bring you more news on this story as it develops. This certainly looks like Mayday Games are basically doing the same thing again. And I do know that Bamboo Bash is now out and about in the world, because I saw a copy in a couple of local game shops. So, yeah, they've obviously seen it as profitable. Great. On Tuesday the 26th of October, there was a Hasbro conference call to update investors. The first, sadly, without CEO Brian Goldner, who sadly passed away recently. During that call, President and COO of Hasbro, Wizards of the Coast and Digital Gaming, Chris Cox, told the attendance that sales of Magic the Gathering topped all of 2020 sales in just the first three quarters of this year. The sales of this section of the company were up 32% in the third quarter compared with the same period last year, taking a total of $360.2 million. I almost want to do the Dr. Evil pinky to the, to the side of the mouth. That is the second largest quarter in Wizards of the Coast history. The first largest was the second quarter of this year, which I believe you reported on. He said, there is a healthy crossover between users who come on board digitally. Sorry. That's the is quote. That... It's a slightly odd quote, but that is the quote. Okay. Right. You could He, he said, there is a healthy crossover between users who come on board digitally who migrate to tabletop. Hasbro Gaming, including brands within Wizards of the Coast, were up 21% over the same period last year to $658.6 million in the quarter. I've got to stop doing Dr. Evil whenever I'm talking about this huge amount of money because I, I cannot conceive of that amount of money. The company overall is solidly profitable, unsurprisingly, <laughs> with net earnings up 15% to $253.2 million. Hasbro also stressed that it is planning around the current supply issues and expects to have product on shelves in the upcoming Christmas period. I mean... Are they the most profitable toy company right now? I don't know. I mean, Lego's probably there as well. I yeah. guess. Lots of people buy Lego sets. Barring my Dr. Evil impression, I do occasionally feel like we're shills for Hasbro because most of the financial reports that we do are Hasbro. And at the end, we obviously do the Monopoly news. A Monopoly, even if it's published by the OP, is owned by Hasbro. I mean, and I they're... They're a big company, they own a lot, but they're also a good barometer for the hobby, and they publish the numbers, which a lot of companies don't. We, we, have occasion, we do report on other numbers when they come around, when other financial reports, but because they're a publicly traded company, they have to. So, yeah, it's the information that's available. And it is actually quite hard to find out information about how the hobby's doing in general. It's, it's the sort of thing that ICV2 and a, a couple of other sites try and get information from by basically calling companies up 
and asking. But yeah, it's it's actually quite hard to get like a, a good overall picture. Or maybe I just need to maybe we just need to be a bit more forward and going, Hi, any chance you could tell us how you're doing? Yeah. I mean they'll probably say no, but hey, at least we're at least we're asking. Yeah. Be an interesting thing to talk to some of the UK design, uh, publishers about. As I'm, we're sitting here recording this, I live in Glasgow and part of the West End around the Clyde and Partick is shut off for COP26. It literally belongs to the UN now. <sighs> it is literally like UN territory. Great. Are <laughs> they going to send in peacekeepers? There will be UN police manning it, yes. Good luck, pals. <laughs> good luck. I'm not, I'm not kidding. No, as, as I said, it's, it's, good it's luck. Called, it's called the Blue Zone, and it, it literally counts as international territory right now. I mean, I mean, I could make a comment about that part of Glasgow being called the Blue Zone, but um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that because I'm not getting involved in football, and this is not a podcast about football. Ian, we're talking about environmentally conscious packaging. Yes, yes, indeed. And as Jamie mentions, COP26 is about to kick off in Glasgow and uh, the world leaders are going to come together and sort out the world's climate crisis. And if you believe that, I have these magic beans I can sell you as well. Which, which, which world leaders is this? Is this, um, is, is, is this Vladimir Putin? Wait, no, no, he can't come. Um, is this the Pope? No, wait. Get, he... Let's not get too far into that. <laughs> is, is it? No, wait. The world of board games is full of plastic and other environmentally damaging practices. For instance, making all your games in China and then shipping them over here. And it's good to see some companies starting to address their impact on the natural world. We would like to highlight two companies just now. And if you know of any others that are making strides in this area, then please do get in touch so we can give them the recognition they deserve. German publisher NSV Spiele have released some of its dice and card games in plastic-free versions under the brand NatureLine. These small box games are packaged inside boxes made from recycled cardboard and wrapped by a paper sleeve. Ultimate Guard released a line of deck boxes called Return to Earth. These are made from 97% recycled packaging with an FSC certified grass paper packaging. The deck case is also recyclable. In addition, when you buy these deck boxes, it funds global reforestation. Working with an organization called One Tree Planted, they have so far planted 1,389 trees since June 2021. This is great to see. It's good to see companies working towards being a bit more environmentally friendly. We're still going to see gigantic Kickstarters full of plastic miniatures, but at least there are some moves towards addressing some of the issues and actually realizing that these are issues that they should be addressed. Uh, Our previous co-host, Mr. Chandler, has his own site about board game sustainability, which we'll link to. And I've got an inkling to put together something for the Giant Brain site, which I'm starting to work on just now where we're going to list all the companies that are making environmentally friendly games, moving towards environmentally friendly packaging, printing locally, that kind of thing. So if you want to make those choices for yourself, you can. Uh, And we're going to put together a bit of information about all those. So yeah, look out for that in the next month or so, once I've got that together. Jamie, after some good news there, some disappointing news from old white guys. Martin Wallace is a game designer of many games some consider classics, such as Ankh-Morpork, now rebranded as Nanty-Narking, Brass Birmingham, and Brass Lancashire. There is a, a lot more. On a recent episode of the Ludology podcast, hosted by Gil Hova and Scott Rogers, Martin Wallace was talking about Australia. 
his sequel of, of sorts to A Study in Emerald, which was based on the Neil Gaiman short story where H.P. Lovecraft's great old ones rule the world. Now, our opinion on this podcast anyway uh, about H.P. Lovecraft is, let's say it's not great. Uh, and I kind of hope that's being spread a lot more now because even for the time, he was racist as all heck. And it's kind of amazing how the gaming industry has gone, eh, that's fine, but look at all the cool, creepy, horrible things that he came up with. Fair. You know. Uh, so I'm going to read the transcription of the interview. This is Martin Wallace. The colonisation of Australia, the real colonisation of Australia, is horribly brutal, very much like the colonisation of America. And it's like, nobody's going to play that. So you replace the indigenous people with monsters. Then you can do it. The mixing of the real world with the fantasy allows you to deal with things that you couldn't do in a straightforward historical game. The interviewer then says, Do you feel that people, when they played Australia, they didn't really map the monsters or the zombies to the indigenous people? You know, they felt like there was a separation there. Some do, some don't. I think when we first run the Kickstarter, I think there was somebody kicking off, complaining there wasn't enough representation of the indigenous peoples. I mean, we hadn't ignored them. We had a couple of character cards in there to represent them. But the problem is, I couldn't go over the top in representing them, because what I was trying to do in the game was represent a wide range of different cultures and nations. So if you look at the different personality cards, they're drawn from all over the world because one of the messages I was trying to show in the game was that the world has been through this cataclysmic event of fighting off these alien invaders. And by doing so, it brought them together. So these people who, in this period in the real world, were all at each other's throats, now they're cooperating in a common task of trying to colonise Australia to help save the world. So that was the real underlying message of that, I felt, anyway. You can put messages in games, but people don't always read them. It's interesting what people do read into games. That's the end of the uh, section I'm going to talk about here. Now, there is a, a on the show notes of the Ludology podcast at the timestamp, it does say, Gil regrets not pushing back on this point a bit harder. He doesn't think turning indigenous people into monsters is effective a technique as Martin does. For a good perspective, check out Dan Thurot's post about this on his excellent blog, Space Biff. Now, I'm not a board game designer by any stretch of the imagination. I, I just talk nonsense into a microphone. I personally do not agree with Martin Wallace very much on, on this point. Yeah. Uh, and he's allowed to have his opinion, of course. That's, that's you know, free speech. There's a thing in the, ca the cast as well, if we've both listened to this particular section of the cast, and there's a thing in the cast where he's basically, he basically wanted to make a game about that period, about that, the, the period of Australia colonization, but obviously it is a horrible, brutal period of history. And this is how he did it, rather than like someone like the Zenobia Awards we were talking about earlier, where they are actually trying to show bits of history, warts and all. And yeah, it just, it feels a bit, I think as Dan Thoreau puts it in his piece, greenwashing the past, where we make these horrible things be about monsters and aliens and squibbly things from beyond, rather than the actual things that happened that were horrendous and horrible. But yeah, do, do read Dan Thoreau's piece. It is excellent. I have read it previously. It's very, very good. I would also like to add that not just this was a bad, like a horribly brutal period in human history, 
This is going to sound grim. I don't care. You're keeping this in, Ian. Most of human history is grim, brutal, and nasty. That's true. And the, impor- and the important thing from Dan's piece, almost he says almost at the top, history is a war. Never forget that. There is news out of Ohio, Ian. Oh, mio, oh, mio. Thanks to Harriet Preble on Twitter, who caught my attention with this story. Hillsborough City Schools in Ohio were planning to put on a show called She Kills Monsters. It's a play in which a girl loses her sister in an accident and tries to understand her lost sibling through the Dungeons and Dragons campaign that she wrote. The play is written by Queen Nguyen, apologies for the pronunciation there, a noted American playwright who has gone on to work on projects for Disney and Netflix. No problems, right? This is America. The main character in the show is implied to be gay, and this got the show cancelled. Talking to Newsweek, one of the students cast in the play, Christopher Cronin, said, It felt like we had just been told, screw off and your lives don't matter. Cronin said, I'm openly bisexual in that school and I faced a lot of homophobia there, but I never expected them to cancel a play for a fictional character. They want to say the town is just not ready, but how are you not ready? It's 2021. Jeff Lyle, a pastor at the Good News Gathering Church in Highland County, Ohio, has been pointed to as influencing the decision to cancel the play. Lyle said he supported the decision to withdraw it, but that he never spoke to the school board prior to the decision. He did highlight other parts of the play he found to be inappropriate, including implied sexual acts between unmarried characters, innuendo, and strong language. John Polstra, father of one of the students in the play, said, I think that's wrong. All that they would have had to do if they objected to something in the play was not go to the play. Yeah, I agree with that guy. So here's the problem here. There's a free speech argument in here, obviously. You know what? If you don't like something, just don't go and see it. Don't interact with it. There's plenty of other entertainment out there that you can go and watch and, and interact with and, and like. Not everything has to be for you. And if you have particular religious or ethical concerns about plays, rather than participating in getting them cancelled so other people can't watch them, how about you just go and watch something else? You are free to not watch this. You should not be free to interfere with other people's enjoyment and all the work these students did. There is a crowdfunder to get the play put on, and I believe it has now hit its stretch goal. We will share that in the show notes. If you'd like to support these students, then please go ahead. Um, I'd like to just add a little thing here, Ian. Uh, it was asking for $5,000. They currently, at time of recording, have $21,075. See? People like it, apparently. Great. Good for them. Jamie, talking about sin. Terrible sins. Are you talking which uh, is the seven? Greed? I'm going to cut to the chase. We're talking about Pokemon. And because it's this podcast, it's going to be the Pokemon cards, isn't it? I mean, last year when the news was thin on the ground, I mean, it wasn't thin on the ground a lot last year, but Pokemon cards and their value was quite prominent in the news. And, well, this is a bit of a doozy of a news story. Vinath Udusmin from Dublin, Georgia, has been accused by federal prosecutors of fraudulently applying for an economic injury disaster loan. That is, the loans that were available to American businesses to help cover the costs of the business during the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. He was given $85,000. 
and spent 57,789 of those dollars on a Pokemon card. He is now facing 20 years in jail. And I know what you're thinking, and the answer is, we don't know what Pokemon card he bought. It also makes it the 10th most expensive Pokemon card purchase of all time, according to the piece on site Kataku, which is where we found this. So, wow. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of people buying cards at ridiculous prices, void up by influencers, as we've reported many times on the cast, so maybe you thought this was a long-term investment for his future. His future in jail. <laughs> Whoops. You know what is a good investment? Becoming one of our patrons. We'd like to thank especially our executive producers, James Naylor and Sean Newman. We'll link to all of James and Sean's bits and pieces in the show notes. And you can join them for only $1 a month and get an extended version of this cast, as well as access to a forward-thinking article we put out every month about what we're going to be doing in the next month or so. And there are other ways to support us on the site, including uh, buying t-shirts from Sir Meeple and funny funny dice lovely dice from metallic dice games i'll put links to all that in our show notes jamie who wants to live forever no not not me i've got this terrible pain in all the diodes down my left hand side um sorry news seems to go in cycles and and games do get reprinted i know and i have a, i have a feeling like we've covered this before and i look back and i, I don't think we have I think so. This is the 50th anniversary of Queen being commemorated in an edition of Monopoly. Now, I know that the 50th anniversary doesn't come around every anniversary, but uh, I feel like we've done a Queen Monopoly previously, but it wouldn't be the first time we've covered the same intellectual property. I don't think anyway. If If I'm wrong about this, please, please feel free to correct me. You'll be buying, selling, and trading gig locations that appear throughout the band's career, building staging blocks and full productions there, whilst playing as either a radio... Ian, name that song. Radio Gaga. Okay. A bicyclist. Name that song. Well, there's a couple. Fat Bottom Girls, Bicycle Race. Bicycle Race. Fat Bottom Girls? As has, that has reference to the Bicycle Race song, in it? Okay, yeah, fair enough, fair enough, but Bicycle Race. Um, a Robot Called Frank, name that album. Don't look at the... Needs the World. Damn, I, I, I forgot I'd written that down in the notes. Um, a Hammer, name that song. Hammer to Fall. And a Vacuum Cleaner, name that song. I Want to Break Free. <laughs> and Brian May's Red Special Guitar, name that guitar... No, wait a second. Don't worry, it's a kind of magic, and Lap of the Gods cards will help or hinder you as you travel around the gig history. Yes, they're community chest and chance, funnily enough. Maybe you'll pick up one of the four global hit records that stand in for the stations. Um, again, I feel like we're just shilling for the OP in Hasbro right now. Yeah, well, I get a cut of all this. You, don't. you won't. And do you know how hard I wanted to put in a queen pun and I couldn't think of one? Oh, well. Well, before we go slightly mad, thank you very much for listening. If Killer like queen. It, if you like what you listen to then the best way to help us out is share the podcast and drop us a review and rating on iTunes you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook we're mostly active on Twitter these days and the place where we're most active actually is our Discord where you can come and talk to us and our lovely community and play games with us on a regular basis as well we hope to see you there for now bye bye 
拜拜。